Welcome back to the Docu Podcast, Shadow of a Mercenary. I'm your host, Kevin E. West, and it's time to get on board and journey into the unique life of Verlin Siefkees, a Kansas crop duster who simply enjoyed painting his daughter's toenails on their porch. But hell, it's easy to be betrayed when no one knows you exist. I never ask you this. We've never talked about this for as long as I've known you. Um, did you ever recall having an actual thought process or an actual, you know, cognitive moment about the dreams or goals of what your life would become one day? Or did you just kind of, you're, you're, you're a half a generation ahead of me. Did you just kind of bump along and just sort of do what you thought everybody was supposed to do? Oh yeah. I always wanted to fly. That was the thing from the whole time. And then I realized that, you know, I wasn't going to go the airline or do that. So I flew and I liked agriculture and cattle. So I always thought I'd go back and farm and have, I can have both lives because you don't fly all day when you crop dust. You go out, the wind comes up, you spray in the morning, and you still got the farming to do with dad and things like that. So so that was kind of a, a, the the destiny that you felt really good about. Yeah, I didn't want to go be a doctor or a lawyer or engineer or something. That wasn't my or football player. Well, I would have done that, but <laughs> I don't think I was good enough to do that. I just like it. <laughs> I'm quite certain you did. So, okay, tell me about the mother of your daughter, Christy. You met her before you got out of the Marines? Your second wife, Mary Ann McLeod. Well, I met Mary Ann, and Mary Ann's a petite little redhead, about 5'4", 120 pounds, I guess, at the most. And where did you come across Mary Ann? She was going to Memphis State. I was in um, aviation school in memphis tennessee oh I for see. six months or so forget how long exactly. so you got in the marines and they sent you to aviation school in memphis tennessee did you like elvis because you like john wayne yeah i like elvis you ever okay. been to graceland of course i have man i'm from tennessee what, <laughs> what, kind of, what kind of question is that of course i've been yeah i've been there i've been there a couple times so you went to aviation school and you're in memphis how did you meet Marianne? Well, other guys were going into town and going to funky bars and stuff, and I decided I'd go find nicer girls, so I, I went to the university and hung out. Memphis State. You went to the university and hung out. Verlin, where on the university campus were you just hanging out? Where'd you go, to the cafeteria or the library? You know, I don't remember anymore. Damn, you're funny. <laughs> and you didn't drink, you didn't do drugs, and you don't remember any of this. How convenient. You're just randomly walking around Memphis State campus. So on the weekend or free time, you know, the other guys would go into town and go bar hop and do whatever. I, I'd go out to the university and look for uh, smart girls, clean girls, you know, just go out and try and find somebody nice to go out with. Cool. So, how did meeting her sort of come about? Well, actually, I think I met her friend. I don't remember where I met her friend. And then uh, her friend, well, she lied. She was two-faced. You could see it in her eyes. And Marianne was her friend because she was playing silly games. But Marianne was her friend. So, I asked Marianne out instead of her. So, you met Marianne's friend first. Yeah. But you looked in her face and you read her soul and you went, mm-mm. Then you met Marianne. Yeah, I just... 
<laughs> kind of like that, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, man's got to do what a man's got to do to get his woman, right? Uh, so tell us about your first date with Marianne. The first date, we went to a barbecue place in Memphis. They're notorious for barbecue. So there's a, I can't remember the name of it, but a real neat barbecue place uh, just a little ways from campus. So we went to the barbecue. And you put the full court press on pretty quick, right? We moved back to Fort Hayes and I finished college. Wow. You got her to move with you that quick, which obviously means you got married. Well, yes, I got married. I got married November 67. What happened when you first got married to Marianne? I was stationed in uh, Beaufort, South Carolina. So we moved down there and I stayed there until 71 in headquarters for two Marine Air Groups, 31 and 32. Christy was born in 1970, right? Your daughter. Yeah, October 1970. And so there was a time window, I figured, toward the end of the tour, I know it was going to get out. So I figured, well, I'm pretty close to not having to go anywhere. And it's time to have the kid and, and have the military pay for it. But if it's too close to getting out and going back to college, then you'd have to delay it. So there was a time window we thought we were fairly safe to right. have a kid. Ah, uh, yes, the kid. In other words, the light of your life. So it's time for you, you know, as a dad, to gush a little bit about Christy. She lives here in Newton, Kansas now. She's a nurse and has been for all 25 years. And uh, she likes horses. We always liked horses. When she was little, I bought her her first horse. And she was two and the horse was two. <laughs> She's pretty small. And she still has horses and likes to ride horses and, and uh I kept her supplied with horses throughout the year. Unfortunately, she married a person who's not a horse person, and his idea of a good horse is one cheap and about to die, so you won't get hurt on it. But at any rate, she's a, she's a good nurse, and growing up, we, uh, while I was married to her mother, we did a lot of things together. She'd ride my dirt bike with me with her little helmet on, and I'd pull her in the sled toboggan behind the dirt bike in the snow, and uh, you know, Sunday mornings or something, we'd go look at the cattle ride around together, and and I never had a family being adopted, and I, that time I didn't feel close to my brother or sister or relatives. I always felt like an outcast, so having a family was important to me, and staying in the same place was important to me. So we did everything we could do together until uh, the divorce came along. When was her birthday, Ferlin? October ninth, nineteen seventy. Okay. And what's her husband's name? Mike. Mike Southern. Do they have any kids? Well, I've got four grandkids. Yes, it's four kids. Now, we have two grandsons and two granddaughters from 19 to 9. And were you able to make her high school graduation? Yes, I flew up for high school. Well, she was here in Newton at that time. and So, yes, I made the high school graduation. It was pretty interesting. They all have a parade before the graduation. They have ride around in old cars. People bring their kids in. She got to ride in in a fire truck because Mike's a firefighter. Would you say your daughter likes speed like you do? I'm not really sure. I th she thought one time, well, I'd like to crop dust too. And I said, you don't think fast enough. And I didn't want anything to happen to her anyway but I did teach her to fly she can fly and she can land an airplane and she can get somewhere with it she used to she hasn't done it for a while but 
I'm pretty sure she could get one off the ground and get it back down without tearing it up again. So you stayed in South Carolina until you got out of the Marines. Yeah. And after that, what'd you do? Went back to Fort Hayes, finished college. How long did that take you? A year and a half, I think it was. And we farmed. But you finished school. What what degree did you finish with? All right. I got a business degree. Okay. And then we went back uh, to farm. And while I was at Hayes, I was taking flying lessons with Schlitter. Then I used the GI Bill to finish and get the commercial pilot's license. And I used the rest of it to get uh, go to an ag pilot school in York, Nebraska and get a crop dusting, the ag pilot license, go to crop dusting school. Where, what city was that in? York, Nebraska. Okay. They had a flying school. And so the, I used the VA to get the rest of the commercial and that crop dusting certificate. Okay. But how did you get a plane? How did I get a plane? You didn't have to, right? Race litter or somebody just hired you as a pilot, right? I couldn't get anybody to hire me, so I got my own. How, Verlin, did you get a plane? Well, things were easy to get in those days. It takes a sheet of paper and it signs signature to get it back then. It takes 20 sheets of paper and 10 times more money than you need to get one now. So, yeah, I had to put it. The flight school was selling the Cessna Ag trucks. So all you had to do was put a $700 deposit down and finance it, and they'd finance the rest of it. And the chemical companies, they like to sell chemicals, so you didn't even have to fill out uh, financial statements then. I knew the guy at the chemical company, and it started out, well, I need three 30-gallon drums of this and some of that and some of this, and he'd send it to me, and I'd send him a check, and he started going back and forth, and it got to be more and more. And I got it financed through production credit build a hangar and everything okay but if it was that easy verlin then how come every single person that liked flying wasn't in the crop testing business i mean you you were trying to start a business how how could you find any customers or clients when clearly being a crop tester was quote unquote easy no it wouldn't there's a difference you gotta have an aptitude for that you're in the early days you were going 120 to 130 miles an hour and you're five foot off the ground and you have to line up and you need to be within 5% of what you're doing. So you have to keep your peripheral vision going left and right, power lines, pivot systems. You have to have an aptitude for that. You have to sit there and it's just, to me, it's just like driving a pickup truck. And you see things from being a, raised on a farm. You see a clump of weeds in the middle of a milo field. There's something in that clump of weeds, like a piece of oil field pipe marking grandma's old water hill. <laughs> you just don't fly over there and whack a piece of pipe with an airplane or uh, you know, your different crops. You can tell them by looking down from the air. Well, that's wheat. Well, that's rye. Well, that's milo. Well, that's soybeans. Well, that's corn. Well, that's alfalfa. And you learn to see what's over to the left or to the right. You, you know what you're looking at. You take a city guy, take him out there, put him in an airplane, tell him to fly low off the ground. About the first time he turns that spray loose and it kills 160 acres of alfalfa, you're out of business. And along with having the right crop dusting aptitude, you've talked to me about guys getting killed crop dusting, wind shear, blah, blah, blah. So tell our audience about the closest I almost died moment you ever had while dusting. Oh, I think what I just told you before, when I blew the engine, I knocked uh, three foot off the top wing on the ag cat on a tree. So that was pretty close. I was trying to cross control the aircraft. 
I knew I shouldn't do it. I knew I was going to do it before I got there because I didn't want to pull up and go around. I'm just going to scoot it around. And a little gust of wind hit me. That four-inch branch right across the top wing. And there went three foot. And you're how far from the ground and how fast are you going and what does it take to land? Oh, I was five foot off the ground doing 135. And so to land it, I, it was flying all right. So I took it back to the airstrip and landed it. Had a mechanic come out and uh, check it and make sure the spar was okay and see if we could fly it do some work he said well is it flying all right and i said yeah it's flying fine I, he said well you told me you had a little damage he said you knocked three foot off the wing and another three foot to the spar is smashed flat six inch wide flat piece about three foot long up there so we took it two before put it edgeways on there and duct taped it on there so it was more airstream you know make it more aerodynamic Okay, so, so it sounds to me like when you're crop dusting, but the issue with potentially dying doesn't have as much to do with, with speed or distance on the ground as it does that you're flying close to the ground or flying close to things and you lose control of the plane quickly, correct? Oh, yeah. You hit something, usually, or the engine quits, or you push the weather, those three things. It's either maintenance, you screw up, or weather. So you're talking about a skill set. But oh, not. yeah, you got to know where to put that stuff, and I can... But all the guys in your neighborhood were all country boys. They weren't city boys. How come they all didn't do it? I mean, I know you had dusting, crop dusting friends, but it just, so clearly there were a lot of people who maybe thought about doing it, but they just didn't have the aptitude for it. They didn't have the aptitude. If you don't have the aptitude for it, you don't last very long. They just bury you. I had some friends like that, too. I know a lot of guys that are dead from doing that. Back in the earlier days, you didn't have the horsepower. No matter how you loaded the airplane, it was always overloaded. So it's always a fine feel in your hand. And if you missed and got a wind shear, there's always wind shears around trees. You get past the building and turbulence. If you don't automatically do that by the time you figure out, oh, what should I do? You've already passed it and you're screwed. You know What does your screwed mean? Please be specific. Oh, the rest of the guys go over and look at your wrecked airplane and go to your funeral, usually. Oh, that kind of screwed. Yeah. Yeah, the wrecked airplane death thing. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of screwed. Yeah. The guys that were already crop testing, I mean, did you meet most of your crop testing friends at that time as peers, or were they people that were already senior to you that were in the business? Oh, there were a few that were senior, yeah. Mike Schlitter was senior. Hell, he's a World War II pilot, and then... Some of his friends, you know, scattered out here and there. And then a lot of them were my age, take over from, you know, a different generation. But the Cessna, uh, Cessnas and Pawnees are always underpowered. You'd overload them every time you took off. Give the audience a few more fun facts about good old Mr. Ray Schlitter. Oh, we could win and drink margaritas at lunch and go back out and fly after that. But you were flying a plane. Well, you weren't going to get a DUI. <laughs> Well, I guess, you know what, on the balance of things, that's fair enough. You weren't going to get a DUI. Tell me about Randy, Ray's, uh, Ray's son. Oh, Randy was a hoot. Yeah, he was, he's uh, the kind of guy that's born with a skill, an engineering skill, but he never went to college. He made these uh, ultralights, experimental aircraft. He started out with little land-sailing bicycles at the airport when he was young. Salem around the airport traffic. And then he makes a special $1,000 bicycle. 
well, he got his pilot's license too, so he's spraying, spraying too. And then, and uh, then he decides to make experimental aircraft. Well, they're not a lightweight experimental aircraft. They're made like the Cessna Ag truck was, so they were stronger and they were powered by Rotex Schemobile engines. But he can just design all that on a computer. He can sit there like you're messing with your computer and just do that and move a wheel or landing gear or whatever part of the airplane he wants to move. He was. If you pulled into his office, you'd think he was a guy that's supposed to be sweeping the floor and taking the trash out, you know. He right. Was, but I think that's what killed John Denver, I'm pretty sure, was an experimental aircraft. Yeah. Well, there's some experimental that I wouldn't get into. But these, are, <laughs> these are welded on a jig with, like, a spray plane. They're aerobatic. They're tough. Right. And so they're fun to go out and play with. And they do 120, 130 miles an hour. Well, again, which is, as we all know by now, all you care about is how fast am I going? I kind of gather from you at, at this point, you're, you know, you're a couple of years into having your business and things are good, right? I mean, you had, you had, how many planes, you had three planes for them? Yeah, I had three. Okay. Yeah. I love that. You just spent $700 and signed a piece of paper and two and a half years later, you have three planes. What the hell did you need three planes for? Well, I had 640 acres to farm. And uh, I finished the crop dusting school and went to crop dusting. And Marianne was teaching school in Allenwood. And she decided that she wanted to quit teaching and go to work at the airport for me. And I wouldn't have to hire a secretary. Which leads me to this question, Verlin. Since I've been a business owner and been under that stress, did you ever fight with Marianne in front of Christy? Oh, hell yes. We had run-ins and I took off and, you know... One night I got toasted at the house arguing with her and I got in my damn truck. We'd been drinking and roared out the driveway partway till I ran into the hedgerow and near the tree where the truck was stuck in the hedgerow. So I had to stay there anyway. Damn. You pulled a Tiger Woods move long before Tiger Woods. Uh, did Marianne consciously denigrate or verbally throw you under the bus with Christy? I mean, whether she did it in front of you or behind your back, do you think she did? No, I don't think she did that with Christy. Uh, I don't think she talked bad about me to Christy. It was her, I'm okay, you're okay bit that got the whole thing thrown out of, out of whack. But that's where we would verbally argue and shit. I'd ask her to do something, but then she made it a point not to do it. And we had her own business, and it was really throwing a monkey wrench on everything. Uh, I mean, I, she wanted to go to work at the airport and quit teaching school. And I said, well... I've got to be the one making the money, so my ass in that airplane makes the money. And as we know, it wasn't just one airplane, it was three different planes. I had one airplane to, to go places with, and I had, had it on charter service, fly people around, so it would make extra money in the wintertime and when we weren't flying, and it made the payment on the plane, too. It did enough work to make the plane payment. You were early Uber for airplanes. No, air taxi. Had an air taxi license, like you go out to any airport and rent an airplane and fly. Like you go to your golf tournament and lease an airplane and go somewhere. You hire me to fly you to your golf tournament. So you you did all the flying for this though, right? You didn't have other pilots. You no. did you did all the flying. I had all yeah, I had all the ratings for that. What were the months that you did primary crop testing annually? Well, April through through August. September. Some September, maybe. Yeah. It, 
phases in and phases out depends on the year you know one year you might have a lot of green bugs in the wheat or you might have a lot of uh, weeds in the wheat or you which was early in the year like april okay so you had a six-month business it wasn't it wasn't technically a 12-month business at all no i mean the winter you know once harvest time rolls in it's over with unless you go down and spray cotton in the south or something for another 60 days okay and and when you would would do winter i guess winter time air taxi work where did you go where were you i mean you were based out of great bend hudson kansas right yeah ellenwood kansas ellenwood where 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 are you flying people out of ellenwood kansas to where oh omaha nebraska scotts bluff nebraska kansas city dallas oil company a couple oil companies they couldn't afford their own airplane at the time ah okay so i went to three oil companies and i said i'll just fly for you three guys as soon as you book a trip i'll tell the other two so that's what i did i flew for the pipeline company and another oil field a couple other oil field companies and if i had a spare flight i'd fly them somebody else too roger copy on that man so here you are running your business. Marianne suddenly quits teaching out of the blue and she decides she's going to come out and work with you. Oh boy, I smell trouble in River City, folks, which of course leads me to ask you about the day-to-day operations we're working with here. And to be clear, up until then, your family had always done business with the Hudson State Bank, right? Yeah, but when I started the crop dusting business, I had to they wouldn't do anything with the airplanes. You know, they're conservative. Crop dusting, people look at you like you're crazy anyway. But Production Credit thought it would be neat to have something like that on their portfolio. So one of the guys bid off on financing the ag operation. So you just, any money you take in, you're supposed to give to them, and then you write a check on the on the banks. All the money, you get 10 checks, 10 checks go to Production Credit, and then you write production credit checks production credit checks to pay for the bills right so so basically it's just a constant cycle of them kind of front-loading you money that you basically pay back in a fairly cyclical short period of time right yeah it just runs a circle if you had cattle you sold your cattle the cattle went in there and Right. You sold your wheat, the wheat went in there. You sold the alfalfa, the alfalfa went in there. So production credit really was just a it was just a cyclical flow banking institution, correct? Yeah, for agriculture. I've heard you say the phrase more than once. Women kind of always seemed to like you until they got to know you. I don't know why that is. Because <laughs> you're a pretty likable guy. So why do you think that? Oh, I don't know when you get get an idea or can do something or you're setting your way i guess you see how things should be and how they need to be seems like that would be perhaps a direct statement about marianne for example she wanted to quit teaching school and help me i said well you know we got the health insurance and everything going through you i said if you come out there i'm going to fire the secretary but we're not having your school income and we don't have their health insurance with the school of course i had the va and so, and I said, you got to do what I tell you. Well, we got out there and I'd ask her if something was done, no. Something else done, no. And then she says, well, you make all the decisions. And I said, you wanted to come out here. I said, I've got so many acres to spray. I don't know how many more I'm going to have. I should I get another pilot into house? Should I order more chemical and have them delivered tomorrow morning? Should I do all these things? I said, what do you think? 
well, I don't know. I said, then do what I tell you. I said, do you want it out here? You've got access to everything. You're watching everything go on. And you're mad because I'm bossing you around. And that's what I'm telling you. You're in the business half and half. What are we going to do? What's your idea? Well, I don't know. Well, I wanted to be in on it. But when you tell them what to do, they're pissed <laughs> off. And then eventually they go bye-bye. Yeah. I mean, it just, you know, if we were busy, if it was windy when I got up, I knew it wasn't going to fly. So I'd say, well, you know, you don't have to be out the airport till 8 o'clock. If it's windy and stuff, you got to get up and do it. Because that's when you get 90% of your work done is in the morning when it's not blowing. Well, I just come tooling out there. I'm standing there talking to a farmer and the plane's running. I should be flying at how many dollars a minute. Here she comes with donuts. So I said, where you been? And then, of course, later she said, well, I was going to show you that you couldn't boss me around. That's less great. You own half the business. No doubt, man. There is a ton of overhead and a lot at stake being an entrepreneur. We had three airplanes. We had our own business. You worked six months out of the year. You didn't have to go to the office until if it was windy or something. You could go late. If we were working, we bought the meals. You didn't have to cook then. You only had to cook when we weren't busy. And you couldn't live like that. That was in the day of the women's movement and do your own thing. And I'm okay. You're okay. And if your husband wants you to do it, by God, don't do it. Feels to me a little like the end is imminent. Yes? Now we're divorced. Now we don't have any airplanes. You don't have the business. You're back driving a little car teaching school. How'd that work for you? You know, so I mean, I guess why, <laughs> why it happened. Yes, I do understand, Verlin. Uh, I was a business owner. It sounds like she kind of just wanted to be able to watch you work and sort of observe and supervise you, but not really learn how to help. And obviously that probably didn't go over so well. But okay, so setting that aside, I'm going to ask you one more time. After all this time, why do you think women liked you until they got to know you? Oh, I don't know. I never thought about it. And that concludes yet another tremendous DocuPodcast episode for Shadow of a Mercenary, the life story of one Verlin Keys. I'm your host, Kevin E. West. Please subscribe, share it with friends, and until next time, stay safe and smart. <laughs>